Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, Hold the Position. Imagine an entire army aimed to take out your life. Most people would advise you, get out of there, leave, flee, hide. That is the exact opposite of what we as Christians do. We stand steadfast and immovable in our position. We would rather die trusting God than live a thousand lives trusting man. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludi. Hold the position. This is in the direction of what we could call a man message uh, at Ellerslie. However, it's not necessarily just about manhood, but like every other message, it's delivered by a man and as a result has a tendency to lean in that direction. Because some of this message is going to be detailed from the skin of a man. And as a result, I'm not in the skin of a woman. It's hard for me to fully articulate this from that angle. The truths, though, in it are the same truths. Whether you're a guy or you're a girl, whether you're young or whether you're old, this is how the soul works. And so the concept is hold the position. In a time of battle, when that enemy is marching closer and closer and closer and you're waiting to fire when you see the whites of their eyes, and yet they're running at you. You know, it's very easy to begin to have knees knock. It's very easy to begin to position yourself to actually run in the opposite direction. But what does your commander say? Hold the line! Hold the position. You've been given a position in this hour, in this day, and God's going to commission you today to hold that position. This is just one of those invigorating messages. I love lines like hold the position, stand fast, hold firm. Anything like that is like, yeah, I like it. (laughs) We don't have a lot of voices charging us like that anymore. You know, if you're not in the military, who's yelling at your soul to hold your position? Who's shouting into the depths of your being saying, stand still, do not move? Well, I don't have a lot of people in my life that are shouting that at me. So though I may not have it, I'm willing to be that vessel in your life to do a little shouting today. I I don't know that I've ever shouted in my life, so this will be new for me. (laughs) William Wallace is under siege. Currently in this exact context of this quote, he is being denounced by the false clergy. And literally the man is speaking a condemnation over his life. And Wallace, basically, nonplussed by the whole thing, lets it, like water off the duck's back, roll off of him. And he makes the statement that he will not leave his position. He will not buckle under. It doesn't matter what is said to him. He knows his commission. But did the clouds rain fire and the earth open beneath me, I would not stir. For I know who planted me here. And as long as he wills me to stand, neither men nor devils can move me hence. Yeah! I love that stuff. All right, so this is a message with a little more of that stuff. But we're going to go to the Word of God on the matter. So here we are. We're in the book of Chronicles. And in Chronicles, you have the tales of the kings. And we have one king, which was an extraordinary king. And I've, I've enunciated the lives of many of the kings here in different messages. But I don't know that I've ever given a message on Jehoshaphat. But Jehoshaphat actually was an amazing king. And so we have Jehoshaphat, who is now surrounded 
by three different nations, all conspiring to destroy Judah. He was the king of Judah. So Israel and Judah were in two separate kingdoms at the time. And so the small kingdom of Judah is coming under siege. And this is what God speaks to Jehoshaphat and his people in Judah at that time. You will not need to fight in this battle. Could you imagine hearing that? You have three armies coming against you, and this is what God says. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Now, I don't know if you can see it. However, the entire Old Testament is a picture that leads us to something. Actually, we could say it very clearly, someone. And that is Jesus Christ. But there's also a something that it leads us to, and that's his work on the cross. You know what God could say to you today as you are considering, how do I deal with sin? How do I deal with these three encroaching armies upon my soul? Imagine God shouting to your soul, you will not need to fight in this battle. Who's going to fight for you? Now, it's not just that he will fight for you, it's that he did fight for you, and he still fights for you. He ever lives to make intercession for you. But the secret to the gospel is this. You have been given a position. You must know who fights for you. And when you know who fights for you, you win battles. Not because of your inerrant strength or your ability to swing a sword. It's because of his ability to swing swing a sword in and through you. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still. Now what I did, I, I wanted to give a whole bunch of different translations for this because the word choice here is very interesting. For instance, stand still sounds like a soft position. So what I did is I gave the ESV here and you're going to see that I changed out the words Stand firm, hold your position. That's what stand still means. Stand still, you know, we could have the idea of it just sort of lazily, just sort of standing, just don't move. No, it doesn't mean don't flinch or don't, you know, blink. It means hold the line. Hold your position. Don't budge. God has set you here and he says, you will win. Do not move from that position. Establishing position. So let's actually walk through the story of Jehoshaphat. In the, the story of Jehoshaphat's pretty long. I have one little section that I carved out, and even that I trimmed out some of the genealogical dimension. You know how they say this is the son of so-and-so, is the son of so-and-so, is the son of so-and-so. They do that all throughout this story. So I trimmed some of that, not because it's not important. By the way, I gave the lineage of majesty, and I showed you the importance of genealogies. In this story, it doesn't play into it. So I did that. So you're going to see a few dot, dot, dots in here. So we're in Second Chronicles chapter 20. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other besides the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Oh no. Oh no. What's Jehoshaphat and Judah going to do? And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Now the theme of this message that we're going to be going through is handling crisis. You see, There are times in our life when we have difficulties. You know, it's just sort of every day, isn't it? I mean, life. Life has a challenge just sort of woven into its fabric. And then there are other days where it seems like all hell has broken loose on your life. I don't know if any of you have ever gone through that, but I don't know how many days on earth it takes before you finally have that happen. But it's tactical. The enemy likes to come in quantity. He batches his attacks 
and he comes in to create a lot of noise around you. All of them may be small, but combined they make a lot of noise. And as a result, oftentimes we will leave our position in the battle in a time of clamor and a time of noise. This message is about learning to hold your position in a time of noise. Learning to hold your position in a time of clamor. Learning to hold your position in a crisis. Crisis may come, but you are not subservient to it. The enemy can make a lot of noise. However, if you learn how to turn down the knob uh, on the volume, you don't need to heed it. So your job is to heed the voice of one, not the voice of darkness. And so as we walk through this, you're going to watch how Jehoshaphat responded to a crisis. And it's a template. We have a template in David and how he responded in the the story of Absalom, which I'm not going to be able to cover here. We have Jesus who responded to crisis all the time. He's surrounded. He's going to be pushed over a cliff. He just calmly walks right through them. We have a time when Paul's hand is bit by the viper. There's a viper hanging off his hand. How's he going to respond to this? This is terrible. He's going to die. Oh, he just throws it off back into the fire, and everyone around is like, whoa. You see, we are stayed in a position. We are confident. We belong to Jesus Christ. Hasn't anyone ever told us this? So when we start understanding the concept of holding the position, let me ask the students here at Ellerslie, what is your position? In Christ. Wow. Hold that position. Do you know what the enemy is going to come against you and say, you're not in Christ? Look at this. Look at how you're behaving. You're stum- you just stumbled. There, that was a sin right there. If you were in Christ, then you wouldn't have done that. He is going to question implied doubt to your position. You must know your position. What would this message shout at you? Hold that position. Remain. Stand still. Do not buckle. If you're in Christ Jesus, did you know that you're baptized into his death? Which means at the cross when he died, you died. Old man is dead. Hold that position. What is your position? I'm in Christ's death too. And as a result, when he says, no, your old man is still alive, you hold that position. My old man is dead. I am baptized into his death. You must hold that position. That is part of being in Christ. Your old behavior is buried. Hold that position. You have newness of life in Christ Jesus. When he resurrected, guess what? You're in him. Hold that position. When the enemy comes and says, you don't have life, there's nothing in you, you say, I will not budge from this position. I know where he has set my feet. I know where he's planted me, and I will not be moved. Hold that position. Where are you seated? In Christ in heavenly places. You are at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus. All things are under his feet. Therefore, as the saints of God, we are positioned in the heavenly realms in him. I know that physically your body is down here, but spiritually you are planted. And you must not move from that position. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. You are fixed in him. And the enemy is going to have to break through the all-powerful barrier of God himself to get to you. You're not the one that is the coward. You're not the one that buckles under. You are the one fixed in position. Remain in that position. Stand firm in that position. Hold your position. So look at what Jehoshaphat does. It says, they came against Jehoshaphat to battle. And Jehoshaphat feared. Doesn't that sound like us? The first thing when we are weak and God is grooming us, is we begin to realize the susceptibility in crisis to give way to anxiety and fear. Well, Jehoshaphat did. And set himself to seek the Lord. But he made a good decision in that fear. A lot of us will set ourselves to solve our dilemma. 
we will set ourselves to brainstorm a solution out of our problem. Jehoshaphat set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. You know that that's the worst thing you could do when someone's coming against you in battle? You know that you need your strength? Instead, what does Jehoshaphat do? He chooses weakness. He says our dependency is not on our strength. We're weak. We don't have what it takes. Have you ever seen the size of our army? Look at we have three armies coming against us. We're small. So what does he do? He gets smaller. He fasts. What he is doing is he's making a declaration of where strength comes from. Strength comes from outside of our own ability. This battle belongs to God. It's a good decision, by the way, Jehoshaphat. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah in Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, O Lord God of our fathers, listen to this prayer. O God, Lord of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? And rule not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? It's like, let's just get the facts out onto the table here. Isn't it true that you are God? Isn't it true that you rule over all the kingdoms of all the heathen? Isn't it true that nothing can withstand thee, that you have all power and might? I'm just, you know, rehearsing some of the facts here in my position. You see, what he is doing is he's establishing his position in faith. He knows the God he serves, and he is rehearsing that which is true within his soul. That which is true of this God that he serves. Art not thou our God, who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gave it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein, and they have built thee a sanctuary wherein therein for thy name, saying, If when evil comes upon us as a sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine. Now I made this big. Now listen. I'm, if when evil comes upon us, we stand before this house and in thy presence, which what he means by that is for thy name is in this house. That's what he clarifies. He says, we stand before this house because this is where you dwell. If when evil comes upon us, we turn to you and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. It's a promise, almighty one. And I am coming to you based on promise. You've said if there is any evil, any pestilence, any affliction that comes against us, if we as a nation turn unto this house where you live, who is that house? It's Jesus. He says, tear down this house, this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And they said, it took us 46 years to build this temple. You're going to bring it back up in three days? He says, but the temple of which he spoke was his body. Who do we turn to in a time of affliction? And God says, I have a promise for you. You turn unto my son, Jesus Christ, where the very presence of Almighty God dwells. And in that time of affliction, he will hear and will help. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that comes against us. Search your soul right now. Search your physical ability. How have you done against the powers of sin as they've come against you? We're weak. We don't have what it takes when these three armies marshal their forces against us. We are weak. And that's what we need to acknowledge. For we have no might against this great company that comes against us. Neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. If any of you have ever been in a time of crisis, this picture, actually, it's, it really stirs some tender spot inside of me when I read that line. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. When it's a time of crisis, for instance, when I'm in a time of crisis, I'm usually not thinking about just me. I'm thinking about my wife and my kids. The reason I want this crisis to end is because I want security 
for my family. I want protection and preservation for my family. And so here we are in a time of war. And all Judah comes forward with wives and children in tow to say, look, we're weak, God. We have nothing. We're vulnerable. And not just the men. The women and children also. Because if the men are weak, guess what? Their protection is weak and thin. So then look what happens. A Levite of the sons of Asaph came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation, and he said, so this is a Levite in their midst, a priest, the Spirit of God moves upon him, and he declares something. God is speaking to the nation of Israel and to Jehoshaphat. He says, Hearken ye all Judah, ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you. This is what he says. Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You shall not need to fight in this battle. That sound familiar? Yeah, this is the scripture we started with. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourself, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Listen to Jehoshaphat's response. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. You see, what you could say is, God, how do you plan on doing that? That would be a reasonable question, wouldn't it? God speaks and says, it's done. You hold your position. You go out to battle tomorrow. The battle is mine. You will not need to fight against them. You must obey. And when you obey, you have my promise. Your enemy will be destroyed. Hmm. So the question is, do you believe it or not? You see, a lot of us could question and go, well, I don't know that I've ever seen that happen before. How would he do it? And you ply it with question instead of do what Jehoshaphat did. He fell down before the Lord and worshipped. You see, he believes it. He actually believes it. He says, oh God, you are good. You are faithful and you have done it. You know that Jehoshaphat won that battle right here? He believed. And as a result... That promise will be realized in his life. Reckoning the victory. Reckoning being an accounting term of attributing something to your account even though you don't yet have it. Were the Moabites and the Ammonites and all the Ammonites' buddies yet destroyed in the natural realm? No, but were they destroyed? Yes. You see, it's a strange thing to know how to answer, isn't it? Because at the moment when this is being spoken, there's a very real enemy out there. And yet God says, they're beaten, they're destroyed. You heed my word, and it's a victory. And so what does Jehoshaphat do? He takes that as victory. And he says, we have victory, guys. We have victory. And yet what would the natural realm say? Uh, You still have some Moabites and some Ammonites and all the Ammonites' buddies still hanging out there with swords drawn. They're ready to kill you. It's like, oh, no, no, they're defeated. You see, this is how a Christian functions. He functions by faith. The term is reckoning. You actually receive the victory, and you receive it as it is, in fact, victory, because God has promised, and he cannot lie. And you say, no, we have the victory. We actually have the strength of what victory will lend us even now, and we have a confidence of victory. We have a rejoicing in victory. You know when you know that you've won and your enemy is under your feet? It's pretty easy to shout like, yeah! However, it's sort of hard to yell, yeah! Yeah! When your enemy is coming at you and he outnumbers you 10 to 1. Unless you know that you have an impermeable barrier about you 
and that enemy will be stopped before they reach you. And then you're just like, oh, this will be fun to watch. I wonder how God's going to do this. And you stand there, and the enemy's coming at you like, they're not moving. Yeah, you're holding your position. And you know exactly what's going to happen. That enemy cannot touch you. Hold the line. Stand in faith. Reckoning the victory. The singing starts before the fight. This is an incredible picture of how we go to battle. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. That's where we ended before now. Let's keep going. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Now, last time I checked, there were three armies out there that were coming against Judah. And Judah is a little, small, diddly squat nation. Judah's not looking good here. So last time we checked the natural realm, Judah's going down. Judah's going to be defeated. If you were a betting man and you didn't have any of this insider scoop, who are you going to bet on? You're not going to bet on Judah. Judah's small, weak. And what are they doing? Judah brings out its best instruments and his best singers and says, let's sing a song. Let's rejoice. What are they rejoicing in? They're rejoicing in a victory. And you would say, well, but they haven't even fought the battle yet. But God's promised. Don't you know how promise works? God cannot lie. And if you believe his promise, you can take it to the bank. It will be done. Any of you doubting it? Is God going to fail in this story? Could you imagine we read the story? It's like, oh, God changed his mind. No, God doesn't do that. God has promised and he cannot lie. When he says, you do not need to... You do not need to fight. Stand firm and stand still in your position. Hold your position. He means it. Go out to battle tomorrow. The battle is mine. I'll defeat him for you. So they sing. They raise their voice on high. Is that how you handle crisis? You see, it says if you're falsely accused, you know what you're supposed to do? Leap for joy. Who does that? You're supposed to rejoice in all things. When times go dark on you, you know what you're actually supposed to exclaim praise? Are you thrown into prison? Sing a song? Why would you do that? Peter and John are, are, are stripped and scourged, and then they come out bleeding, and they rejoice that they were able to share in the sufferings of Jesus and suffer for his namesake? Cuckoo. Is it cuckoo? Is this cuckoo? Or is this actually basing your life upon the reality that other people can't see? God said there's a victory. Walk in it. Believe it. Start rejoicing. The victory's done. It's accomplished. Live it! And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. So you can just sort of picture all the army is coming out there. They're doing what God said. Hold their position and go out to war, even though they will not need to fight. So I don't know if they brought their weapons. I don't know how this worked. Could you imagine going out to, to battle and not even bringing your weapons? Like, oh, we don't need that. We'll just bring our stringed instruments and sing songs. I don't know all the details in this, but here we are. We have Jehoshaphat who stands in front of them as sort of the commander-in-chief and gives them his little speech. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Remember I started this whole section? If you have the notes, you can see it. It says, established in your position. How are you established in your position? Because you just want to have a position? You need a position? God puts you in that position. God says, do you hear me? Do you believe my word? We go, yes, I do. Stand there. Stand in that position. That's called faith. You know your position, and then the fruits of faith, the fruit that you actually believe it, you bow down and worship. You sing songs with a loud voice. 
You begin to praise. You begin to leap for joy because there is an actual victory. The question is, do you believe it or not? Do you believe what God has spoken? Because he can't lie. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so ye shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. Their lead instrument are singers that are praising the beauty of God's holiness. What a strange front lines crew. These are special ops forces. Uh, You guys ready for this? Yeah. Okay, I want you to sing really loud. (laughs) That will bring down the walls of Jericho. What a strange battle technique. I know this isn't Jericho, but I'm just saying, that's exactly what they did there too. What a strange way to lead. Singing? What? That doesn't do anything. Well, in the natural realm, it may not. However, we are showing in the natural realm who is actually fighting this battle. We're willing to look foolish in this realm to declare who actually is fighting. We know he's fighting. We know we'll win. So, and as they went before the army, and to say, praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. Isn't it terrible? I end the story there. It's like, that's all you're giving me? Well, it's not like there's a lot of other stuff in the story. There is more, and it's, it is good. However, look at this. It just says it. Did God fulfill his promise? Yes. All we know is that he set ambushments against those that opposed him, and somehow there seems to be some sort of infighting. And when they came upon them, do you know that there were just dead bodies everywhere? They didn't have to raise one finger. They went out in praise and worship, full confidence that God had done exactly what he said he would do. And he did. You see, we put our confidence in God. God is always, always, always faithful to his promise. The bait to flee. So now we're talking about crisis. When you're in a time of crisis, there's a lot of noise, a lot of clanging of pots. And one of the baits of the soul is to flee out of your position, to turn from your position. Okay? So run, flee, get out. It's not worth the fight. You know, a soldier turns and flees in battle. It's one of the greatest disgraces to any soldier. However, how many of us have done that? We move forward in a battle that we know God has assigned to us. You start standing up for your marriage, and what are you going to find? It might be difficult. And yet, hold your position. Don't flee just because it's getting difficult. How many marriage, uh, married partners have thrown their hands up and they're going, Hey, I've had enough of this. Okay, I just can't keep going through the same difficulty over and over again. I'm out. The enemy is always supplying the out. He's always coming up with brilliant ideas for the out, too. It's like, have you thought about this? One of Leslie's and my outs is, because we get fed the same thing, by the way. Leslie and I are under a constant siege. Crisis is just sort of a close buddy in our life. We've gotten very familiar. Oh, oh, you're back. Uh, Very familiar with the notions. And we joke about it quite a bit. You know, for, for Leslie and I, it's escape to New Zealand. It is. That's come up in my mind many times. And then Leslie has said it this way. How about we move to New Zealand. I'll have the kids down there. You can come back and die a martyr here. <laughs> All right. I don't know that I like that idea. But, but the point is, leave your position. There's something that God has planted me in in this hour, in this generation. 
And yet there's a lot of noise to say, get out, give up, run, flee, preserve yourself. Eric, don't you know what this will do to your wife and kids? I do. I will not be moved. I will not leave this position unless God lifts me out of it. No demon, no man can move me hence. We know as the body of Christ what is imperative in this hour. However, there's a voice. And in the time of crisis, it gets very, very loud. Sandy, uh, what do you, you always run? That, the bait for you is to go and just be a grandma and knit during the day. <laughs> ben, uh, it would be so much easier if he just went to some mega church and was a worship pastor there and stopped having to stand for truths that actually force the soul into battle. There's so many other ways that you could be a Christian today. You don't have to antagonize the devil. Let's just, you know, play it evens. And yet, every single one of us, we go around the staff and we sort of look at each other. You in? You in? And everyone's like, of course I'm in. What do you think? You see, we're standing the line. We're holding the line saying, we will not budge. We will not be moved. This is how the soul works, though. Because you know that you will take a stand for truth in your soul? And you know what the enemy will do? He'll create crisis and he'll challenge that position that you have. However, it's not just external positions like in a ministry, a governmental position. Some senator says, I will not be moved. And he, he does a filibuster or something. In other words, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the soul condition. Every single one of you from a young age, and this is for young and old, you need to learn how to remain in position and not allow the enemy to bait you out of it. Come on, just for Friday night. It's not that big of a deal. You can't just hold that position seven days a week, you know, all year long. You can't do it that way. You're going to fade. No, my confidence is in Jesus Christ. He tells me to remain in this position. He will supply me everything I need. He gives his beloved rest. I have rest, and he makes me lie down in green pastures even when I hold my position. You know how ridiculous it would be to be in the middle of a battle, bullets flying all over the place, and a voice comes in and says, why don't you just lie down and take a nap? It doesn't make sense in a time of battle. However, that's exactly what we're doing in this battle because we don't see the bullets, and as a result, we set down our sword, and we go, oh, you know what? A guy can't just fight always. And you fall asleep. What's going to happen to you if you fall asleep in the midst of a battle? They'll kill you. The enemy loves this stuff. We have to understand how the battle works. Debate to flee. Well, I don't know what you've been told, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your family, whether it's in the church, whether it's in some ministry. You start standing for truth, you'll get this. It's a bait to flee, a bait to a more normalized existence. By the way, and Leslie and I have talked about this many times, the safest place for you to ever be in all the universe is right square in the obedient position. Where God wants you. It doesn't matter if it's in the middle of North Korea. Do you know that you're more secure right there than you would be in suburbia, USA? You must obey God. When we are baited out, do you know that we are far more vulnerable to falling apart and falling to pieces spiritually by disobedience to leave our position? Like I said, there's nothing more cowardly. There's nothing more disgraceful and for a soldier to leave his key position in the line of battle. It leaves that, the rest of the troops vulnerable at such a delicate and, and imperative time. So here we are in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah has a position. Nehemiah is building the wall 
around Jerusalem. It's a very important job. There's a whole book in the Bible about its importance. This is not a small thing. The fortification of Jerusalem is in the middle of taking place, and Nehemiah has opposition. In fact, Nehemiah's opposition far outweighs any of the opposition that any of us have ever gone through in our life. It's extreme, and they want him destroyed. So, what we have is right near the end. The wall is almost finished. They've tried every tactic. I came to the house of Shemaiah, a secret informer. Shemaiah is a trustworthy fellow. Now, you just happen to know he's a secret informer because that's what the Bible says. Nehemiah, there was not a big sign around his neck that said secret informer. However, he is working with Sanballat, Tobias, and Geshem the Arabian. He is working with his enemies, consulting with them to actually undermine Nehemiah. Now, I want you to follow very closely on what the bait is. The bait is flee from your position, Nehemiah. And watch how the enemy thinks about this. Just just get inside this story. It's extremely powerful. So he came to the house of Shemaiah. Shemaiah was probably like, hey, Nehemiah, come on in. Shemaiah's in the ranks of Israel. Come on in, Nehemiah. He was a secret informer, and he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, should such a man as I flee? Look, Shemaiah, I have a job to do. God has assigned me not to hide, but to build. I will finish this task. For this reason, he was hired. So Shemaiah was paid by Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arabian to dilute, to bait Nehemiah from his key position. For this reason, he was hired that I should be afraid and act that way and sin. Isn't that interesting? The bait is that we would act that way and sin, that we would leave our position. You see... As a father, if someone is trying to harm my wife and children and I leave at that moment and get called off on a business meeting, what have I done? I've forsaken my first responsibility. And I can say, but hey, I'm also responsible over here. Whoa, whoa. Do you understand? There's nothing wrong with the temple. There's nothing wrong with going into the temple. It's why you're going in there. To hide. That's the problem in this story. He was going as a coward to hide. And Nehemiah said, should such a man as I flee? You're a Christian. Don't you know your position? Don't you understand what you are called to? Don't you know who protects you? You are called to stand. Should such a man as I, should such a one that is a Christian, clothed in the almighty grace and almighty defense of God himself, flee? No way. For this reason he was hired that I should be afraid and act that way in sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might Reproach me. You hold your ground. You stand your position. God has given you assignment. Carry out that assignment. Stayed and ready. Men that did not flee. I just have two quick examples. Eleazar, when the men of Israel were gone away, they had all fled. All of Israel fled. It says he arose and smote the Philistines. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day. Shammah, another one of David's mighty men. Both of these are David's mighty men. When the people fled from the Philistines... He stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory that day. Everyone else fled, not Eleazar and Shammah. I like that. That's what we want in our spiritual life. These are called mighty men. This is the substance of what happens in a man who understands the significance of the battle, 
understands the power that they have in the battle, and they will not be moved. You see, they had brushed up closely against the power that dwelled in David, their king. And they knew that as they stood for David's kingdom, they would share in the same strength and the same power. Well, have you brushed up close against the power of Jesus Christ? And do you realize that when you stand and fight for his kingdom, the same power that he fought with is bequeathed to you? And you have the ability to fight as David fought, as Eliezer and Shammah fought, as Jesus fought, as Paul and Peter fought. So we can fight. We have the stuff of old available to us. Yes, it looks like there's a little rust on it and it hasn't been swung for quite some time. But the sword of Jehovah awaits those who would willingly pick it up and swing it in this generation. We are fearless. The enemy cannot stop the church of Jesus Christ. He may want to and he may be contriving all sorts of different ways to do it. However, if we hold our position and do not fear, he cannot stop us. No armor for the back. Retreat is a very unadvisable thing in Scripture. God has given us armor. However, in clarifying the armor in Ephesians 6, Christians throughout the ages have noted one very critical thing. God did not supply anything for retreat. He has given everything for the front because we march to take the gates of hell. We don't flee when the gates of hell start running after us. We march straight at them knowing who we represent. We represent the victor. The enemy's head has been crushed at the cross. We do not fear what he can do to us. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Calm and confident in the day. For the Lord shall be thy confidence and shall keep thy foot from being taken. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence and his, refu- and his children shall have a place of refuge. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. Prepared for the day. One of the thoughts I've had, especially this week, I had a very unique week. It's sort of even hard to describe. I had a lot of clanging pots this week. And it wasn't just one pot. I don't know if it was five to ten pots all at once. It was like just sort of a harmony line of pots. And I had a lot of noise. And I had a lot of bait to leave my position. And I didn't leave my position. I can say that. But I'm very familiar with this process. And in the process, because I've dealt with a lot of attack... I've dealt with a lot of extreme situations. And as a result, it's almost like God began to show me this message as I was going through to articulate that which needs to take place in a soul. Now, when you're not in crisis, this could be sort of like, yeah, why do I need that? When you're in crisis, this is imperative. You see, God is doing a work in you in the times when there isn't crisis to prepare you for crisis. And then he takes the crisis and makes you stronger for the next crisis. If you do not receive that training in those crises and in those preparation seasons, you will not be prepared and you will fail in the day of battle. That's why as Christians, we don't just wait to be Christians when we're thrown into concentration camps. We prove Christians before that day so that when that day comes, we can prove Christians. You do not just show up at Omaha Beach and hope that you're going to have the courage of soul. You have to be trained as a soldier before that day so that you do not prove a coward when the bullets are flying and when all the men around you are dying. You still must march. You still must heed the voice of your commander. Do not fail in the day of crisis. Do not fail in the day of trial. This is your hour of preparation right now. You don't fear crisis. Actually, when you're prepared for it, you get very excited about it. 
If you have ever been one of those, I don't, I don't want to ask the question, but we have probably some straight-A students in here. You know, those kind that sort of look at everyone else as like, you know. You don't know how to do the study. And you, see, you know, the straight-A students, very rarely do they even study. They just have it all figured out. It's like photographic type of stuff. We call them cheaters when I was in high school. <laughs> but when a student knows what the test is going to be and he knows the answers for the test, you know what they actually look forward to the test? Most of us don't like tests because we don't know the answers. When you know the answer, did you know that you relish a test? Hey, when's the test going to be? You ever heard that kid in class? You're like, be quiet. <laughs> could, we have a, could we have a pop quiz today? Shh, shh, be quiet. You know what you say when you're ready for battle, when you're ready for crisis? Uh, could we have a, a pop crisis today? Can I just get some practice in? You see, if you have been training for something, anything, and you're, be- you're beginning to gain that excellence in it. You know that you want to prove it? You want to show it. You want to show your strength in battle or in a sport or in a test. Well, that's the way God wants to build us. He wants to make us excellent for the day of battle, excellent for the day of crisis. Prepared for the day. Look in Psalms 119. It says, order my steps in thy word. However, the word order, I don't know why it's translated as order here, However, it means to bring something into strength. It means to prepare something, to establish something, or to fix in advance. So it's the concept of, you know how God makes provision? So he's our provider. And so on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And there was a ram in the thicket. God knows in advance what you need. So when we are asking him to order our steps, what we're saying is, I need a ram in the thicket for that day of battle. I need to have the provision of God worked in me so that when I get to that battle, I have the power requisite for that battle. Isn't that an interesting statement? So that's David's request. Order my steps in thy word. Establish my steps in thy word. What's your position, students? In Christ. Who's the word of God? Order my steps in thy word. That's David's request in the Old Testament. And God says... I've got this under control. That's exactly what he does. He fixes us in Christ Jesus. He makes us strong for the day of battle. If you are going to be strong for crisis, you get fixed in the word. Text and person. You know the word of God for battle. When Jesus went to battle with the devil in the wilderness, what did he wield as his weapon? The word of God. What do we wield? The word of God in text and in person. We need not just the words of scripture. We need the person of scripture living inside of us enabling us to not blush, to not cower, to not tremble, but to stand firm and to say, I know the one in whom I live. So order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Well, we've been going through the gospel in the first three weeks of Ellerslie, and one of the key concepts is not letting iniquity have dominion over us. As Paul says in the New Testament, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you would obey it in the lust thereof. However, every bit of Paul's argument up until that moment in Romans is about being in Christ. You get in Christ and no longer will sin have any dominion over you. All of these powers, all of these threats, trials, and crises, they will no longer cause your soul to tremble. There's only one thing you tremble before and that's the word of God. Only one. Stay in position. So here's my little battle cry. Hold your ground. 
Should a Christian flee? Should a Christian be afraid? You are not going anywhere. Hold fast your position. Sandy, you are not going to just go and knit. Ben, you're not just going to go to some mega church. And Leslie, you're not headed off to New Zealand. (laughs) You are not changing the things that God has set. You heed God's lead, not the enemy's. The enemy will not define the terms of your life. The enemy will not dictate where you go, what you say, what you don't say, what you do or don't do. God sets you here. Stand firm. Don't move from this position. Be still and watch what your God will do for those who trust in his almighty name. Do you hear it? You see, in this process, we need to be reminded to stand fast, to hold fast, to stand still, to keep our position. We are entering possibly even a greater challenging period for the church, and we as Americans are soft. We have not kept our position in Christ. We have not kept our position in his death. We have not kept our position in the burial that we are supposedly in. We have not kept our position in his resurrection life. We have not kept our position enthroned, I'm sorry, seated in the heavenly places where he is seated. We have not kept that position. And so as a result, we lose our position like that. And the enemy comes in and makes a big stink, and we go, I've had enough of this. I, I, don't, I just don't want to deal with this. I can't deal with this anymore. Hold your position. Stand fast in that position. Tensile strength. Now, I, the students will hear it this semester. One of the things I teach about is tensile strength. Tensile strength is a type of measurement. And I'm going to describe it. How much stress, difficulty, and hardship the human soul can handle before giving away and breaking. So we will measure things like uh, trampoline springs and rope with tensile, but actually God measures the soul. Now, God actually in the scriptures has a concept for tensile strength, but most of us don't realize it. It's the word patience. And it's how much stress, difficulty, and hardship the human soul can handle before giving away and breaking. You know that God will never allow you to be tested beyond what you are ready to handle? He knows your tensile. <laughs> he knows what you can handle. However, He will allow you to be tested because you know what happens when you're tested in your tensile? That sounded funny. You know that your tensile becomes stronger? You see, the only way for your tensile strength to increase is it for, to, for it to be tested. The same way with muscular strength. The only way for muscular strength to increase is for it to be tested. For it to be challenged, to have stress, difficulty, and hardship put against it. Same with the soul. God knows what we need for the day of battle. But we don't want it. I want it on my terms. I want it easy. I'm an American. I deserve an American version of Christianity, not the one in the Bible. And God says there's only one version of Christianity. You just happen to be in America, but I need to save you out of your American mindsets. You see, we're going to die if we have that mentality. We need Jesus to rescue us, and he rescues us on his terms. So tensile strength. Now I want to talk about something else, resilience. How long the human soul takes to return to its former size and shape after enduring acute stress, difficulty, and hardship. If any of you have ever gone through an extreme difficulty, the death of a loved one, uh, a a difficult uh, thing financially where literally your life is thrown uh, into a tailspin, maybe it's a uh, betrayal, of something in your life. I mean, it's extreme, whatever it is. Whether it's your, you're a child and you have, your parents get divorced, there's been a trauma to your soul. Resilience is basically the measurement of the human soul when it comes to how fast do you get back into the saddle? How fast do you return to a position of strength? 
Because when we are hit, some of us can be down for years of our lives. Some of us actually never get back up. We have zero resilience, right? We had zero tensile strength or we had a very small tensile rating. So difficulty came against us, we snapped. Now we can't get back together. Well, that's not the way the kingdom of heaven works. God is interested in building tensile strength and resilience in your soul. You are tested, you respond back with strength. You hold your position. If difficulty comes against you and there is a trauma in your soul, which, by the way, just happens by the nature of being human, and, you know, if you are ever, if you ever deal with a very deep emotional wound because of someone near you that has cut you or said harsh things against you or has betrayed you, it's very real. And so your resilience is how quickly you can get back to that place of solidity and health where you can turn outwards, where you can see the needs of others. You ever notice in a time of crisis you're dealing with you? Oh, what a, oh boy, I just need to hold together. And what happens is the enemy gets you off the game of Christianity. What is Christianity about? It's about his glory and about everyone around you. You see, this is tactical. And God wants to build tensile strength and resilience so that the enemy can bring in his best. And guess what you see? The glory of God in everyone around you the whole time. And so even in your response, think about Jesus on the cross. Has anyone ever received a greater trauma? Has anyone ever been in the midst of a greater crisis? And what is he thinking about? The thief on the cross? Father, forgive them? He's thinking about the care for his mother? He's thinking about his father in heaven. The glory that is needed for such a thing as this. He is rescuing us. His entire motivation is us. You see, he was built properly. Well, he's God. But who lives in you? That. And he says, hold fast. I will give you the strength. I held fast then and I want to hold fast now in you. Let me build this strength in you. So I have a little mathematical equation here for you. It doesn't lay out very well, but tensile strength plus resilience equals patience. So if you were to break up patience into its parts, you would see, oh, it's tensile strength. Oh, but it's also resilience. In other words, we are meant to have patience. Now, I have a little parenthetical statement at the bottom of my mathematical equation here. And it says, it sort of defines patience for you in a very basic way. I have other messages which go into it in great detail, but it's the ability to stay in position. So when you have patience, you do not budge. You do not quake. You do not move. You stand firm in the battle. But that's not what most of us think of as patience. Patience is one of those cute kid terms that you have when you don't yank on your mother's arm when she's talking long after church. And you're supposed to have patience. However... This is what patience is biblically. Patience biblically is for battle. It is that which causes a man or a woman to not melt in a time of difficulty. It's that which we have for crisis. And when you have patience, you thrive in crisis. You even strangely start singing a song in crisis. And someone could say, how could they do that? Well, they have patience. That doesn't make any sense to our mind, but that's how patience works. So how do we get patience? Because most of you in here would say, okay, I could use some of that. <laughs> I, I like a little of that. How do you get it? I remember going through that exact same challenge in my life. I needed this. I needed it desperately. I recognized the enemy could come in, and I was just a pile. I was just a heap of ruin. And it would take me such a long time to get back into working order. In fact, for the most part, the whole while I was even getting back in working order, I was thinking and meditating upon how I could do something different other than stand up for Jesus Christ. Like, this stinks. No one ever told me about this. I can't keep doing this. I was just a rag doll in the enemy's hand. 
It's disgusting looking back on it. However, that's the way most of us in the church are. The enemy has his way with us, and he defines the terms in our life. It's like, yeah, you really should shut up the shop here. Close it down. You know, this isn't working for you, is it? Yeah, it's pretty difficult uh, being a Christian, isn't it? Yeah, no one ever told you about that, did they? You're like, no, it didn't. And we're like listening to this stuff. And God whispers to our soul, tune out that. Listen to me. You do not need to fight in this battle. I'm asking you to stand firm. Let me build you strong. All this other stuff will start bouncing off you. So how do we get patience? Well, there's a lot of things I could read on this, but let's just be very simplistic about it. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. You ever thought about that statement? We glory, we boast, we make much of tribulations also. Why would we make much of that? That's bad. Knowing that tribulations worketh patience. Oh, does it? Uh-huh, that's the way you get it. You want patience, you need tribulations. Like, okay, I'll, go, I'll be fine without the patience, thank you. I, I, that, you cancel that order, cancel that order. <laughs> tribulations comes from the word tribular, which is the threshing instrument. It's that which purifies wheat of the husk of chaff. It actually is a bettering instrument. Some guy who's threshing wheat is not thinking, oh boy, I have a tribular in my hand. Oh, I don't want to hurt the wheat. No, he's helping the wheat. By removing the chaff and that which is unnecessary and that which cannot go to the market and be usable as grain. He needs to remove that husk away so that it is useful. We must have the tribular applied to our souls so that that which is of the flesh is removed so that which is useful to God is readily available. What works that? What gets us the patience? What gets us that soul strength? That indomitable soul that is uncrushable, unstoppable, immovable. Uh, it's called tribulation. In James 1, it says the same thing. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Isn't that interesting? You see, it's the same concept all throughout Scripture. Patience is gained through difficulty, through crisis. And when you go through that crisis and you respond properly, the way God has prescribed us to respond, we get stronger. And he says, it's doing its work. You see, that crisis could come from the devil. However, God will leverage that crisis to our strength. The saints of God only get stronger with difficulty. Though the enemy's attempt in difficulty is to distract you and to disturb your soul so that you give up. He's actually walking a very fine line with a Christian soul. Because if we respond properly, his attempts to destroy us make us stronger. That's the way we hold in contempt the devil. We say, thank you for that. Now I'm stronger. And we say, if you want to bring some more, you're more than welcome to, because every time you do, I get stronger. See, as Christians, we can rejoice. We can sing songs when we're thrown into prison. The glory of God is going to come forth. Jesus Christ is going to be seen more clearly. Because in this difficulty, I know that the gospel will not be stopped. And so therefore, no matter what they do to me, if they lop off my head, guess what? Even as my head has fallen into the basket, it'll say, praise Jesus. Because even in my death, the world around will say, whatever that man has, I must have. And the gospel is preached even when I'm dying. Nothing can stop the saints of God. Hold your position. Don't deny the faith. Stand resolute. So it says, the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
the growth of a soul, the increase of tensile strength and resilience. So this is sort of a history of us, history of me personally. First, you get hit, and it takes, well, I don't know why years to recover isn't there, but it takes years to recover. It could take, we could even say decades to recover for some people. They're still shaking based on something that happened 40 years ago. You see, that's not tensile strength and resilience. And then it takes months to recover, weeks to recover position. You see, I don't know where you fall in this, but when the enemy comes in and hits you, how quickly are you getting back up? Now look at this. It takes days to recover, hours to recover that position. Have you ever had that? I, had, I can remember a few years ago when I would probably describe it as hours. And it would be like I'd be hit hard, and there's certain things in my life, and if I was going to be honest and try and give an assessment, there's certain things, they literally like water off a duck's back. They don't even affect me at all. And other people, it would crush them. It doesn't affect me at all. But there's certain things, and the enemy knows what they are, and they still take me a bit of time. It's like literally my knees are knocking, even though in my head I'm saying, I'm getting back up on that horse, but right now I'm feeling it. I'm feeling every bit of it, and God, I need greater strength. But I remember it would take, you know, I'd say hours for things that right now don't even affect me. And it used to be weeks. I would stew in self for weeks sometimes and just be like, woe is me. And then God would sort of, uh, Eric, you know what? There's a bigger world than what's going on inside of you right now. I've built you for something. Rise up. What have I been doing? And that's what many of us have sensed. See, the enemy wants to turn us inward. God's saying, you keep your eyes focused on me. This will work. Hours to recover, minutes to recover position. How about this one? Seconds to recover position. Here's even a better one. Nothing can remove me from my position. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm willing to give up everything to get that bottom one. I want that sort of strength in the battle. In certain aspects of my life, I have that. Certain aspects, there's still a vulnerability. And the enemy will hit, and he will hit hard. And I want to be so resilient that it doesn't matter if the Pope denounces my soul as he did Martin Luther's. Denounce, I mean the Pope. Denounces your soul and consigns it to hell. Says, I will not be moved. Whoa, how about Athanasius? Constantine comes up to him and says, hey, Athanasius, will you not recant? The whole world is against you. Athanasius says, well, if the world is against me, then Athanasius is against the world. That's where the term Athanasius Contramundum comes from. Athanasius against the world. We are not placating. We are not desiring and cherishing the good opinion of this world. We please one. And we will not move from this position. The motto for crisis. God is in control. The first thing that needs to begin to emit out of your soul. Like if I was going to train you how to wake up in the morning. You wake up in the morning and you make a very clear statement about your position. First of all, something like, good morning. Oh, it's going to be a great day. I just want to freshly ratify the fact that my life belongs to Jesus Christ. He has ownership papers on this body. He rules this life, and that's the way this day is going to be. Whatever he wants goes in this body. When a crisis comes, this is one of the first things you need to ratify in your soul. The enemy is not in charge. You see, what looks like on the outside is that the enemy has sway over your life and he can make your life a living hell. And you make it very clear. God is in control. You 
Declare it within the depths of your being. God is in control. Be still. Stay in position. The enemy will not define my thoughts, my actions, or my behavior. And I guarantee you, in a crisis situation, anxiety, fear, self-defensiveness, depending on what it is that's coming against you, there's a desire to protect. There's a desire to turn inward and justify yourself. To somehow self-preserve. Where can I go hide? And you say, no. Should such a man as I flee? Take your stand. Hold it fast. The enemy will not define my thoughts, my actions, or my behavior. Watch what my God will do. You see, you stand. God is in control. And you would basically make the declaration, watch. Watch what my God will do. Imagine Jehoshaphat. It's like, uh, you've got three armies out there. Uh, Moab, the Ammonites, and Mount Seir. You know, I, this isn't looking good for you. And he says, my God's in control. I'm not going to let those armies dictate how I'm going to respond. Okay, I could give way to fear and anxiety. Well, that's if I actually believed that they were going to rule me. Instead, I'm going to fall down and worship my God. I'm going to call a fast and say, my dependency is upon God. And you know what? I can just tell you ahead of time, they're defeated. They don't have the upper hand in this situation. They are going down. My God wins his battles. Watch what my God will do. The code for crisis. So we're going to go through 12 musts for the hour of trial. Now, some of you are going to need to dig this out of mothballs in the future. And I want you to own these things. And I don't know, some of these things are from a leadership position. But I still think in the essence of application, every single one of us in here can apply it. So this is the code for crisis. This is just how you dictate to your soul, even ahead of time, how you're going to respond. Instead of negotiating terms in that hour, in that time, it's sort of like, well, when I get to the concentration camp and they say, I'm going to kill you or you deny Jesus. Uh, And then you're like, well, I'll figure that out then. No, you need to know where you stand now. The way we prepare in our souls is for truth to lead. And we must know that in a time of crisis, we are weaker. We are softer than we typically would be in a time of strength. So these are the code for crisis, things that you need to begin to ratify in your soul now. First thing you do when the enemy hits, you must reckon yourself in Christ. I'm in Christ. I know my position. And as a result, you know your security. The enemy's making a lot of noise, and he's trying to bait you for fear and anxiety. He's going to get you. He's setting up an army to get you, and he's going to bring you down. I'm in Christ. I'm secure. Number two, you need to get the grace needed. If you're in Christ, that means his death is your death. That means his burial is your burial. That means his resurrection is your resurrection. You see, you're in him, so where he's going, you go. And where did he go? He went to the right hand of the Father. He brought you near by the blood of Jesus. You're in him, and as a result, you've been brought into what is called in Scripture the throne room of grace. And it says, boldly enter the throne room of grace where you may obtain mercy. And listen to this one. And grace for help in time of need. So if you know your position, guess where you are seated? You're seated in that throne room of grace. And what do you need right about now when the crisis comes? You need grace. You need the power of God. You need the strength of God for the moment, for the situation at hand. So get the grace needed. You have grace for help in time of need. You just need to go after it. You need to take it. You have access to it in the person of Jesus Christ. Number three, maintain priority throughout. This is very, very important, even though I don't know that my language for it is going to be clear. But here's here's what happens. The enemy comes in with a gong, with a lot of noise. Our responsibility is to keep focused on our task. Okay, what the enemy will do, say you're guarding a door of a castle. 
The enemy will try and create a stir over here, and he'll say, this is of an urgent nature. Go tend to it. And what will you do? You'll leave your post. What will come in through your post? The enemy. You need to understand how the enemy baits us in a time of crisis. He's trying to get us off our post. But God has already assigned you the post. The king came up to you and said, stand here. Guard this door. Unless it's the king himself that comes to you and says, go deal with that, you stay. You know how hard that is in a time of crisis? So what we oftentimes do, we'll start, we'll start making phone calls. We'll start trying to mitigate against problems and leaks. I mean, if your crisis is water's coming into your basement, what, do you, what should you do? Try and close off that leak. I know a lot about that, by the way. <laughs> However, how many of us remain in our position in Christ, getting grace and saying, God, I want your attitude throughout this whole thing. So I'm going to you first. Have any of us ever thought of praying first and saying, God, remember what Jehoshaphat did? came and set his face to seek the Lord. God, aren't you the Almighty One, the one that made the heavens and the earth? Isn't it true that all the heathen nations are subservient to you and you have control over all of them? Everything in this universe is under your feet. I'm going to you. This situation is under your control. I submit it to you. I'm not going to respond in the enemy's terms. I'm going to respond on yours. Here's what I notice, and this is what I'm very sensitized to. My time of prayer can oftentimes be diminished in a time of crisis. My time with my wife can be diminished in a time of crisis. Of course, doesn't she understand? Of course she does. She might be the one saying, you need to go into that meeting. You need to deal with this. My time with my kids can be diminished in a time of crisis. Does Eric know where he's supposed to be standing? Am I going to allow the enemy to dictate how my life works? No, what I do is I reckon myself in Christ. I go and get the grace. I say, here I stand. I will not be moved by the enemy. I will be moved by my God. So I go to him for wisdom. I say, God, what do you want? What's your assignment? I don't go to my circumstances and let them dictate my behavior. So don't alter your God-assigned priorities. Number four, rouse your soul to rejoice. Cherish this opportunity to get more patience. You ever thought of that? It's like, oh, boy, I've been praying for more patience. Now I've got the opportunity. And if you rouse yourself to rejoice and say, praise Jesus, for such an opportunity to grow in grace, to show forth the nature of my king, to reckon my old man a freshly dead, that I am not ruled by the flesh in this situation, but the spirit of God can flow through me in a pure fashion. This is exciting. And I'm only going to get stronger through it. Rouse yourself to rejoice. Number five, offer thanksgiving and sing praise. Doesn't that seem like the most opposite thing to do in a time of crisis? Well, doesn't it seem like a... Weird time to sing a song when you're thrown into prison? How about to rejoice and and leap for joy when you are scourged? Yeah, this is how the disciples did things. You know that St. Ignatius was told he was going to be fed to the lions and his first response was rejoicing? Because the lions were going to bring him into the presence of the one he loved, Jesus. You see, eternity is not a bad thing to have your eyeballs fixed on. And if anything is just leading you closer to that or eternity getting clearly, more clearly established in your heart, no downside to it. Offer thanksgiving. Praise Jesus. This is your weaponry. It says the weapons of our warfare are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And we're like, well, what is our weaponry? Well, you're hearing it right here. You learn to take your position. You learn how to stand in that position. You learn how to rejoice and how to offer thanksgiving and praise in a time of weakness. I'll tell you what enemy goes down. For the victory is the Lord's. He will prove the champion every time. Number six, 
Garrison the mind. A garrison is an army or a battalion that is surrounding a, a newly conquered territory. Your mind belongs to Jesus. It is not available to the enemy, but the enemy wants to ply you with all thorts, sorts of new thoughts in this hour of crisis. Typically, they come in the package of anxiety and fear. However, there's other variations of that, sort of the run-for-your-life thought. You see, there's all sorts of variations, I guess, uh, or it's the go-knit thought, or the go-to-the-megachurch thought, or the go-to-New-Zealand thought. Those come in. And would you call them fear and anxiety? Sort of. They're like brothers and sisters of it. In other words, they're the practical solution that anxiety and fear present. We must be watchful of our mind in a time of crisis. Put an extra garrison about it. So it says, check every thought at the door. Frisk every thought to see if they have even a trace of anxiety or fear on them. None of this can be allowed in. Garrison the tongue. Put a guard up over your tongue. Do you know that in a time of crisis, you are more vulnerable and susceptible to saying things that you wouldn't say in any other time? Just like you're more vulnerable to thinking things. There's a cloud that can easily come in. And with your soul, there's just a softness. You feel vulnerable. You feel weak. And as a result, your tongue can very quickly be employed by the flesh. When under siege, the soul is sensitized and softer than usual. Overstatements and flesh statements mustn't fly. I have noticed in my past in dealing with crises that overstatements are my weakness. I will make a statement that is too dramatic. And it's just like in the moment, it still feels right. However, when I assess it, I realize what I'm doing is I'm overreacting. There's like a sensitivity in me. It's like, this will be judged. Okay, that type of a thing. You know what? It's probably true. However, I'm allowing a certain dimension of self to get in and to be hit and to be struck. And as a result, there is a response that is unhealthy or could be classified as fleshly. Not on our watch. This is not how it works in our souls. We must recognize the enemy's tactic and not fall for it. So garrison the tongue. You see, the tongue is owned by the Spirit of God. And in, this, in a time of crisis, it must make a firm resolve to remain the vessel of spirit truth. It is better not to talk in a time of crisis and just take a vow of silence for a few days. You'd probably be better off because the things that we oftentimes can say, it doesn't mean that we are not supposed to speak. We just need to make sure that our tongue is only employed by the Spirit of grace. Number eight, be bold to do the difficult things. In a time of crisis, our knees can knock. And we can feel extra weak. So to do difficult things in a time of crisis, almost impossible. And so what I'm saying is be bold to do them. To be bold to do the difficult things. Don't avoid the difficult situation. Do what needs to be done without hesitation. Sometimes life and death is defined by doing what must be done in the moment, even if it is the most difficult thing you have ever done. Estron Kim is brought up to a high hill with all these other students from her school. She was a teacher in the school in South Korea. And there's a sun god. The Japanese sun god is placed in front of them. And every person has to kneel. If they don't, there will be a penalty. And that penalty will be severe. It could be that they would lose their life in that very moment. It could mean that they're put in prison and tortured until they do bow down to the sun god. Every single other person bows. To do the difficult thing in a time of crisis is very hard. However, she stood, lifted her head straight up heavenward, and defied the Japanese warlords. Whoa! She's a girl! You don't do that! Didn't your mother teach you properly? Her mother taught her to do that in a time of crisis. Do the difficult things. In a time of crisis, you feel weak. 
move forward, do the difficult things. You must resolve to do the difficult things even before you get to the time when you need to do those difficult things. You tell your body, you understand that it's trembling a little, you understand that, however, this body is controlled by Jesus Christ, and we're not kowtowing to any weakness or fear in this moment. We move forward and we do that which God has assigned us, and the grace of God will be commensurate for the task. Enter the searchlight. Be slow to expose the faults of others. When you are under attack or in a time of crisis, it's very easy to begin to examine the faults of other people around you. However, enter the searchlight. Be quick to expose your own personal faults. You know that you might actually not be responsible for much, but you might have something that you're responsible for. Make it right. Your job is to enter the searchlight and to be clear in your heart before God. So that otherwise the enemy will feed upon that sin in your life and bring you down. Take claim to whatever your responsibility might be in the situation. Allow the searchlight of the Spirit to start with you. If you are wrong in any matter, then repent, confess, and make things right quickly. You can say, what about the other guy? That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is this territory. And the enemy's trying to come in and stake claim to this territory. You must be watchful over it. Number 10, choose weakness. What a strange thing to do in a time of battle. Choose weakness. Remember what Jehoshaphat did? He called a fast. Why would you do that? Because you are weak. And you must recognize that this battle is bigger than you. And if you do not submit to the Lord of battles, you lose. So choose weakness. Accept a, weak, a weakened posture and a humble approach. Wield love as your battle axe. Isn't that a strange battle axe? Doesn't battle axe seems a little too gruesome. But love is powerful. That's what you wield. You know that when you wield love, it is a weapon of our warfare that is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds? It is. Wield gentleness as your weaponry. Fast and increase prayer. In a time of crisis, become weaker. It's okay. You're already feeling weak. It's okay to become weaker. Because what you're declaring is, God is the Lord of battles. He's the one that fights for me. Consider how you may be blessed. Consider how you may bless those attacking, those opposing. In weakness, there is spiritual power. Number 11, get in the shoes of everyone else. In a time of crisis, what the enemy wants to do is keep you in your shoes. He wants to keep you focused on your issues. However, you know what God trains his kids to do? To get into the shoes of everyone else. You know, in a time of crisis, say I'm getting hit with something. You know the most important thing for me to do? Make sure I'm sensitive to my wife and realize that she's feeling weak in this time. Be sensitive to my kids and not forget them while I'm in emergency meetings. Be sensitive to my prayer closet and, my, and Christ. To not neglect him while I'm doing his fighting. To be sensitive, for me, it's the sensitive to the entire body. I have to be sensitive to my students, my staff. You see, in a time of crisis, I just don't think about me. The term here is seek to be presidential. Sort of, this is a long-standing thing that Leslie and I have laughed about, about for many years. And that's the president, in a time of crisis, dresses in sort of his sweater vest... And his, you know, he has to look casual. He can't look like he's sitting in the Oval Office. He needs to look casual, like he was caught off guard by this too. And then what he assures the nation is, we will get these terrorists. Don't worry, folks. America is still strong. Our infrastructure is still fine. Our economy will stand this. You see, everyone is starting to fear, and what the job of the president is, is to turn outward and bring comfort. Now, the guy could be lying. I'm not saying that you should be lying. I'm saying you stand firm in this hour and you get in the shoes of everyone else and you give them the strength that you have. You know the truth. Remind them that he is the Almighty One. Remind him. 
Remind them that he is the Lord of battles. Remind them that they are in Christ Jesus. You are responsible to caretake for the souls around you, and that goes for even young kids. You have truth for the hour of need. How many parents have been rebuked by their kids as their kids say, Daddy, isn't Jesus strong enough for this? Like, wow, well, yeah, yes, yes, he is. Thank you. <laughs> you see, even the kiddos are the ones that need to think about those around them. The kids can think about their parents and how difficult this might be for them. Seek to bring order and peace to the ruffled souls around you. And then finally, 12. Save the big life decisions for later. See, what happens at a time of crisis is the enemy baits you to go knit, to go to the mega church, to go to New Zealand. I, one of my other baits is to become a farmer. I wanted to be a farmer. It's like, I don't want to deal with people anymore. Farming. Could you imagine me, a farmer? Uh, do not make a life decision when God has already made a life decision for you. You've already set yourself in a key position. Do not make an extreme decision in a time of crisis. If it's at all possible, do not make that. Now, sometimes you have to. The decision is, are you going to deny Christ or die? Well, you've already made that decision ahead of time, and you're already standing in that position. Okay? Or it could be, uh, you know, flee unto this town or flee unto this town to save your life. There are decisions, and you will have wisdom in, those, in that moment. However... If you can't avoid making life decisions like we're just going to move to New Zealand, that's it. And then in the middle of your occupation, your commission for Jesus Christ in this hour, you make a decision to depart, that's the enemy's terms. The enemy has won you. The enemy has gotten his ends accomplished. So if possible, wait for circumstances to calm before making large-scale life-directing decisions. Eyes to see. Living with reality in view. One of our weaknesses is in a time of war, in a time of battle, in a time of crisis, we only see what's coming against us. We see the Moab, we see Ammon, and we see Mount Seir. And we see them, them marshalling their forces. That's what we see. We hear the clang of their pots. And we give way to what the enemy wants to do in that situation. And then he defines the terms, and we flee. We run from our position. But God has given us territory. He's given us Judah. He says... Stand in your position. You know what to do. I am the Lord of battles. You do not need to fight this battle. I will fight it for you. Eyes to see, living with reality in view. Do you see the power of your God? Do you see that he is the God of battles? Do you see that he has given you everything you need for life and godliness? Do you see that he will keep you in this time of storm? Do you see that when the winds and the rains beat against your house, it will not fall because you're fixed on him? And if you remain in your position fixed upon a rock, you're not going anywhere. It's fine. This too will pass. It'll make a noise and a bluster for an evening. There might be a little flood in your basement in the morning, but guess what? Your house still stands. You still remain positioned and firm. So here we are in 2 Kings. We're in the days of Elisha. And Elisha is creating a problem for the Syrian king. You see, the Syrians are a much more powerful force than is Israel at this time. And the Syrians are wanting to devastate the power of Israel. But for whatever reason, every time they try and come in to defeat this pitiful power that has hardly any military force to it, the Israelites always know what they're going to do. You know why? Because Elisha, God would tell him what the Syrians were going to do. And so he would then tell the king, and the king would then move his men into position and be able to fight against it. Well, that's frustrating. And so what does the king of Syria do? He actually calls in his men, his close counselor, says, one of you is betraying me. Because every time I try and do this, 
They know what we're doing. And they're going, hey, hey, king, we're innocent. We're not doing it. It's Elisha, the prophet. He knows what you're saying in your bedroom. And this king is like, what? He knows what I'm saying in my bedroom? And so he calls out all the troops, a massive force to go against one man. One man. And the entire Syrian army comes to destroy that which is causing a problem in Syria, Elisha. If they could deal with Elisha, then Israel is going to be easy. They stand against Elisha. So here we are. Therefore he, the king of Syria, sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. So here's Elisha, and his servant goes out, and he sees this army. And, he said, and his servant said to him, uh, Alas, master, what shall we do? Okay, crisis has come. Which one are you? The servant or are you Elisha? Do you have the substance of soul or are you buckling under when you see this? If you saw a big army surrounding you and you're a single individual, how do you feel? You know what? It's a time for weakness, isn't it? So this is how Elisha answered. He answered, do not fear. Does that sound easier said than done? Do not fear. It's like, uh, don't you see what I see? Remember what the name of this section was? Eyes to see. He says, no, I don't see what you see, O servant. I see something bigger. Listen to this line. Do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Could you imagine the servant? He's sort of like, one, two. (laughs) You know, do a little math on this. That's not true, is it? Depends on what you're looking at. Where are your eyes focused? Are Are you only following the pots and the pans and the clangs? Or are you looking at God? Reckon yourself in Christ. If you understood what it meant to be in Christ, that means all the fullness of God is available to you. You have the life of Jesus Christ made manifest to you. Everything you will need for life and godliness, for boldness, courage, and strength, everything is available. So it says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What are you seeing? What do you see? What is God saying to you? He's saying, hold your position. Don't buckle under. Don't buy the bait of the enemy. Sure, I I know what they look like in the natural, but do you know what I look like in the supernatural? Because if you did, you wouldn't buckle under in this hour. If you knew what was standing behind you, O church of God, you would not buckle under. You could say, but what about the homosexual lobby? What about Islam? What about the liberal agenda here in America that's literally destroying our societal structures that used to be Judeo-Christian? What about it? Do not fear. Where are your eyes looking? Don't you know that I've got them right where I want them? Well, it sure doesn't seem like that, God. And I've got you right where I want you. Stand firm in that position. Let me grow you up unto a mighty force in this generation. God is taking the weak things of this earth, which, by the way, are us, and he wants to wield them to stand firm for his gospel, for his truth in this hour. Let's finish with our scripture that we started with. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position. That's your job. Your job is to believe. 
Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Isn't that exciting? Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.